Those of you who are joining us uh, by podcast, we're very glad that you've decided to join us, uh, and we, uh, we appreciate that. You know, the vision here at City Church, we want to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond through a movement of people who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think one of the ways that we demonstrate the fact that we are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ is through our commitment to the institution of marriage. And so in this ser- we're in a series right now called New Marriage, uh, Same Spouse. And what we're trying to do in this series is we're trying to understand uh, how God designed marriage. Because marriage is theological in its origins. It's not anthropological. There wasn't some, some caveman uh, thousands of years ago who just somehow dreamed up marriage. Uh, God designed it. And so it would be very wise for us to understand exactly how God designed this thing called marriage. And we said last time, two weeks ago, because uh, it's been two weeks ago since we last met because of the bad weather last week. Boy, it's amazing how much a week can change things. And by the way, it's going to be in the 70s this week. Is that good news or what? Yeah. Uh, we said a couple uh, weeks ago that, that there's nothing in the Bible about how to run a business or how to run a school or how to run an art gallery or anything like that. Because God didn't directly invent those things. Of course, he made it possible that all those things could happen. But, but he didn't invent those things directly. But there are three institutions uh, in life that God did directly invent for the welfare of humanity. And those are family, church, and state. And since, since it, it, given that God invented family uh, for the welfare of humanity, it would be very wise for us to understand exactly how he designed this thing called marriage. Because here's the deal. Biblical principles have a way, they just do this. They have a way of biting back if you don't follow them. Um, as they're designed to be followed. Not, not out of malice. It's just part of the consequences of it. And I want to explain that. I want to explain what I mean by biblical principles biting back. And I want to do that by way of analogy. Uh, many years ago, when Amy and I, my wife Amy and I started dating, uh, I decided uh, one time that I was going to invite her over to my cool bachelor pad. And I was going to cook dinner for her. And my roommate was out and he had a gas, he had a gas grill. He was out for the evening. And I thought it would be very romantic and very suave to have her come over and I would cook dinner for her. And so after I picked her up and brought her over to my cool bachelor pad, uh, I told her to wait inside. Just, I said, I said just, just, you just wait inside while I go out on the back patio to light the gas grill. And, of course, you know, I thought... Uh, I was very suave and very cool, and so I kind of took my time walking out to the back patio uh, because I was a cool bachelor. And uh, I got out to the uh, grill, and I turned on the gas, and I just kind of took my time after I turned on the gas. And I might have even looked inside and looked, you know, pointed at her and said, how you doing? And uh, something along those lines. I just kind of took my sweet time. Now, here's the thing. The starter uh, on the grill was broken, and so my roommate had kind of devised a way that we could get around the, the starter not working on it. And the, the, the way that he had devised, like if this is the grill, then you had to you could turn on the gas, and, and you had to get back kind of behind the grill, get up there real close. There's a little slot back there in the grill where you could put light the match, and then you put the, the match in there. Now, this hole uh, back here in the back, like I said, it's where you drop the match. Well, since I turned on the gas and had sauntered my way over very slowly and maybe even looked inside the house and pointed at her, um, the gas has been building up for quite a while. 
And so I lit the match. I'm on a date. I lit the match. I got up there real close, real close. And I dropped the match in there. And whoosh, the fire blows up. Now, I'm frozen in place for a moment. I don't, I'm not exactly sure what's happened when the thing blew. I'm just pretty sure that I'm lucky to be alive and that I've ruined any pretense of being cool. I walk back in the house and Amy says, uh, what happened? I heard an explosion. Are you all right? To which I replied, I'm fine. Uh, I'm fine. Uh, Can you excuse me? I just need to use the restroom for a moment. And so I go into the bathroom and I look in the mirror. And when I look in the mirror, I notice that my eyebrows are completely singed. And the wind from the explosion and the fire has blown the front of my hair straight up. And it is singed in place. Straight up. Singed in place. So that I'm having to... I'm standing in front of the mirror trying to break my hair so that it will come back down. And then I smelled charred for the rest of the date. Now, it's very hard to remain cool when you smell charred for the rest of the date after you've just almost blown yourself up. Now, here's the point of the analogy. Uh, The grill bit back. The grill bit back. Why? Was it out of malice? No, of course not. The reason that the grill bit back was because it wasn't designed to be used in the manner in which I was using it. Okay? Now, that's the same way that biblical principles work. Is that sometimes they bite back. If you try to enter marriage in a manner that is different than the manner in which God designed it to be used, it'll bite back. And so what we're trying to do in this series is we want to understand how did God design marriage so that we can experience all of the joy and all of the intimacy of marriage that God wants us to experience without having it bite back because it does that. And it hurts when it does. It, 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 it hurts. The passage that we've been looking at is Ephesians chapter 5. And if you have a Bible, a copy of the Bible uh, in front of you, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll begin reading uh, again, at verse 21, I want to remind you of where we've been because I know that we've been out for just a couple of weeks and I know people come and go and all of that. So just to remind you of where we've been. Uh, while you turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, just want to remind you of the assumption of this passage. The assumption of this passage is that you have responded to the gospel. And consequently, you have the Holy Spirit. Uh, you have the power of the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit living in you. Now, that's very important. Because as you read through this passage, you're going to see that there are going to be some things in here that you're going to say, oh, wow, uh, that could really be abused. And there are things in here that if you did not have the Holy Spirit living in you, then yes, there are things in here that could be uh, terribly abused. But as long as, you are, as long as you have the power of the Spirit and you're choosing to be filled by the power of the Spirit's, uh, and the Spirit's wisdom, then these things won't be abused, okay? Now, there are two foundational truths upon which this passage rests. The first is the Holy Spirit is the power for marriage. Okay, now that's true whether you're, uh, whether you're a person who's responded to the gospel or not. You just need to know the Holy Spirit is the power for marriage. Uh, the second thing is, again, this is true whether you've responded to the gospel or, uh, or not. Self-centeredness is the main problem in any marriage. You look behind 
any problem in marriage. And if you dig down far enough, you will find that self-centeredness is the cause. It just That's just the way it works. And those are the principles upon which this passage is based. Those are the, that's sort of the context for this passage. So let's start reading in verse 21, and let's remind ourselves of what the Scriptures are saying. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, wives... Submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So we're not exactly going through these verses in chronological order. Now, we're going to cover all of these verses, but we're not walking through them in chronological order. In fact, what I had you do last time, and I'm going to do it again this time, is I want to direct your attention to verse 31, because uh, verse 31 is uh, really, it's a quote that Paul takes from the book of Genesis when God institutes this thing called marriage, and he's speaking about Adam and Eve in verse 31. And there's another very important principle that I want you to see as it relates to God's design for marriage that a lot of people tend to ignore, and because of that, it tends to bite back. Now, uh, in verse 31, God, again, speaking of Adam and Eve, he he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother... And be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, this is not quite necess- this is not quite as uh, shocking a statement to most of us uh, in uh, in America as it is to people in other parts of the world, especially in the Middle East and especially in Asian nations, in which uh, fulfilling family expectations and uh, respecting the family honor is of first and supreme importance. And it's, it's also not obvious on the surface just how countercultural uh, what Paul is saying here is. When two people got married in the ancient Near East, what you need to understand is that the wife always, the wife always left her family. That was just understood. But in their patriarchal uh, culture, the husband never left his family because it was his job to carry on the family legacy and to inherit the estate uh, in case something happened to the, uh, to the patriarch of the family. And so it just kind of passed down. So the husband, the husband never left his family. The wife always joined the husband's family of origin. Now, with that historical context, can you see how shocking this statement, verse 31, was? When Paul says, a man will leave his family to be united to his wife. 
Can you imagine how shocking that must have been to Paul's original readers? Because what he's doing is that Paul is serving notice in the strongest possible way that he could that God designed uh, marriage to be the single most important priority in your life over everyone and everything else. Okay, that's what he's saying. Now, obviously, that's not true of Christ. I mean, Christ is the most important relationship that you have in your life. But outside of Christ, your marriage is to be the single most important priority in your life over everyone and everything else. That's what Paul is saying. In other words, in other words no relationship in your life is more fundamental than your relationship uh, with your spouse. It's to be the single most important priority in your life. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, he's saying look... A husband is to leave, even even a husband is to leave his parents. That's how important it is. Now, why would he say something like that? Well, two reasons. One, if if you are married or if you've been married, you know this. You, You know that your marriage has the power to set the course of your life as a whole. Like if your marriage is strong, if things are going well in your marriage, you kind of, you move out into the world in strength. But if there are real significant problems and real significant issues in, in your marriage, you know that it tends to cloud the rest of your life, doesn't it? And so Paul is saying, marriage, your relationship with your spouse, the single most important thing, most important priority in your life is your marriage. The other reason that he says this that is so important and I'm not going to get into this much today because we're going to elaborate on it later on in the series. But there's something that is significant about your marriage, that is so significant about your marriage, that it actually, it actually transcends you and your spouse. And you can see it uh, when Paul says in, in, in verse 32, he says, uh, he says, this is a profound mystery as he talks about marriage. But he says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, what I want you to get, and I'm not going to talk about it much today, but we'll talk about it later in the series, is that there is an importance and a symbolism to your marriage relationship that transcends just you and your spouse. So there's something about your marriage that it's it's a mystery. There's something mystical about it, but there's something about your marriage that transcends just you and your spouse. And it signifies something to the world about Christ's relationship to his church. So you have to understand that. Somehow your marriage symbolizes Christ's relationship to his church. So he's saying nothing should, nothing should matter more. Nothing should come between you and your spouse. Nothing's more important. There is no greater priority in your life than your marriage with your spouse. Now what I want to do in the next few minutes is I want to apply this principle that, that nothing should come between you and your spouse. I want to apply this, and I want to show you four things that we tend to allow to uh, replace the importance of our spouse in our marriages, okay? And Paul starts with uh, parents, and because Paul starts there, uh, I I want to start there as well, but I want you to understand that your relationship to your parents is just one application of the overall principle that marriage is to be the single most important priority in your life. Paul is making an argument here from the, from the greater to the lesser. He's saying, in other words, in that culture, if family isn't supposed to get in the way, then obviously neither is anything else. So he starts with, he starts with parents. I'm going to start with parents, but I'm going to mention some other things other than parents as well that tend to get in the way of marriages. 
And so we'll just start with parents. Um, let me just give you four signs real quickly that you uh, haven't left your parents. If you're a young couple here today, maybe you're not even a young couple. Maybe you're a middle-aged, maybe you're an older couple. You've been married for a long time. Let me give you four signs that you have not left your parents and been united to your spouse. Four signs these things can undermine marriage. Here's the first one. Accepting strings attached, you know what I mean, strings attached financial gifts from the in-laws. Now, what I mean is, is like if the in-laws say, here, take this amount of money, but if you do, you must, and then, you know, kind of fill in the blank, you must stay in the area, you must attend some specific church, uh, you got to send your kids to this particular school. Now, be careful, I'm not saying that it's wrong to accept financial gifts from the in-laws. I'm not saying that in any way, shape, or form. Some in-laws are just very generous and they give without any attempt to manipulate. But let's be honest, some don't give that way. And if you're accepting financial gifts that obligate you, you really haven't left your family. What you're saying is that you would still rather be controlled by your parents than pursue what God has for you and your spouse. You see, nothing is to come between you and your spouse, not even your parents. And one of the ways that you demonstrate that you haven't left your parents is by accepting strings attached financial gifts. Here's a second sign that you haven't left your parents. Uh, emotional dependence upon your parents. Emotional dependence upon your parents. I have counseled new young couples over the years in which one of them has uh, inordinate concerns. Sometimes both of them, but usually just one of them has inordinate concerns over what mom and dad will think about every single decision that they make in their marriage. Uh, like, you know, how they spend their money and what they spend their money on and, you know, what their career choices are, etc. Now, Again, understand, there's absolutely nothing wrong with consulting parents for advice. That's good. That's, that's a very wise thing to do. But if you can't make a decision without your parents' approval, you have a problem. And let me get very specific about this. I want you to understand this. There is one thing that you cannot do. You cannot take your marital conflicts to mom and dad. Have you ever known couples who um, uh, have some kind of an argument, and then they run and they tell mom and dad uh, what the other person said. You ever known couples like that? Okay. There is no better way to destroy intimacy in a marriage and ensure that honesty in a marriage never happens than to do that. You just can't run and tell mom and dad what your spouse said to you in an argument. You cannot do that. You need to find a friend. You need to find. Uh, uh, you need to invest in a counselor. You need to find a pastor. But you just don't need to do that with your parents. Emotional dependence is a sign that you haven't left uh, your parents. Now, here's a third sign that you haven't left your parents. That you haven't been united to your spouse and left. Okay, and that is psychological dependence on your parents. Now, here's, here's what I mean by that. Many of you have left your parents financially. Many of you have left your parents emotionally, but you haven't left them psychologically. Do you realize, I don't know if you realize this, but it is possible to actually hate your parents and yet still be psychologically dependent upon them. Did you know that? In other words, every decision that you make, you make intentionally... Because it's the opposite of what your parents did to you. In other words, I'm never going to do anything that my parents did. I'm going to do it completely the opposite 
how my parents did it. And that's being psychologically dependent upon, the, upon your parents still. Even though, you, even though you hate what they did, you're still, everything you do is the opposite of your parents. I counseled uh, years ago a couple who, a uh, young woman had a father who was an alcoholic. And she hated the dysfunction that that created in her life. And you can imagine, I mean, right? Who could blame her for that? She just hated the dysfunction that that caused in her life. And so under no circumstances did she want alcohol to be in her house at all. And, And again, you could completely understand why. Except the problem is that her spouse enjoyed... Um, having a glass of wine or having a beer now and then. Now, he didn't, he was very responsible with it. He didn't, he didn't abuse it. He didn't get drunk. He, he, he was not dependent upon it in any way, shape, or form. But his wife demanded that he give it up. And she did, she kind of did all this demanding under religious pretenses. You know, it was all, you know, it was about her Christianity and, and all of that. Now, here's the thing. It might have been very gracious for him to give it up. But I want you to understand that she still hadn't left her home. She was still being controlled by an alcoholic parent. And she wanted and demanded that her spouse be controlled by that alcoholic parent too. Now, as I said, it might have been wise for him to just say, look, you know what, I don't, I don't agree with all the reasons, but because it matters to you, I'm willing to give it up for you. That would have been a wise thing for him to do. But, what I, but, but, but you've got to understand that leaving home includes dropping the psychological dependence that you have on your parents. And there are people who can hate their parents and still be completely psychologically dependent and controlled by them. Okay, last thing, and this, is, this, this may be the hardest of all of these, that sort of signs that you haven't left your parents, and that is expecting your parents' traditions to be followed in your marriage. Expecting your parents' traditions to be followed in your marriage. And what I mean by that is, like, in your family... I don't know what it was like. Maybe in your family, every Saturday morning, your father got up and he took your mom to breakfast. And it was a time that they could get along and they could talk and they could plan together. And, and so you assume that your wife wants to do the same thing. And so, like, you're just ready for that. And so Saturday morning comes on the first Saturday morning of your marriage after you get back from the honeymoon. And you're ready to get up and you're ready to take your wife to breakfast. Except you found out, you find out that she really does not want to go to breakfast because she just wants to sleep in on Saturday mornings. Now, it's a neat thing that your dad uh, did that for your mom. And it's a neat thing that it worked for them. But I want you to get look again at verse 31. Look at what Paul says. He says, he says for, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This phrase, one flesh, means that you become a completely new family. Like there's never been a marriage. There's never been a family like the two of you. You're unique, the two of you. You're not just like your father and your mother or your spouses 
father and your mother. You can't come in to a marriage and say, well, my family, uh, my dad, my mom always did this, so I expect you uh, to do the same thing. You can't do that. If the Bible says that you have to do something, uh, well, then because God invented marriage, you have to do it. Apart from that, everything else in marriage is negotiable because you're a new unit. Uh, You have to develop a new culture in your marriage, new ceremonies, new rituals, new traditions. And if you don't do that, you haven't left your father and mother. Marriage, you see, has to have priority. And it has to have priority over your parents' marriage. Okay, Parents are just one of the things that we tend to let replace our spouses in our marriage. Paul applies that principle directly to the issue of parents. But I'm going to apply it now to three other things very quickly that I want you to see that we tend to allow to replace our spouses in our marriage. One is parents. Okay, besides parents, here's another one. And that is children. Children. And um, actually... Allowing children to replace your spouse in your marriage is probably far more common than most of you think. Where a child can become a, uh, it's where a child becomes sort of a surrogate spouse. And I'm not talking here about physical, uh, sexual abuse, although that obviously can happen as well. I'm really talking about when a child becomes a surrogate spouse, it's kind of an emotional uh, kind of incest. And there are kids who, well into adulthood, uh, you know, dad refers to her as daddy's little girl, or mama, mom refers to him as mama's little boy, or something like that. And not only is that not helpful, but it's also kind of creepy. And it's terrible for your marriage as well. If you let children become the center of your marriage, if you let them replace your spouse. Now, I know it's countercultural to say that because children have become the new idols in our culture. But the goal with children is to raise them up and get them out of the house. I, I'm going to say this to some of you guys. I want you to hear this. Some younger people, I, I want to say this to you guys because your parents probably aren't going to say it to you. Here's what I want you to hear. Your parents want you to leave. They just do. They want you to leave. Like at some point, they want you to grow up. They want you to get out on your own. They want to get you off their books financially. They want you to have your own insurance and your own place and your own job. They want you to go. That's good for your parents' marriage if you'll just go at some point. I'm not saying today, but I'm saying at some point, you got to go. Can I get an amen on that from parents? There you go. Um. Children are not to come between you and your spouse. Parents aren't supposed to come between you and your spouse, and neither are children. And sometimes that happens in our culture where somebody begins to place the child like as, at the center of the relationship, and it's not good for your marriage. There's another thing that tends to come between, and I can speak to this one personally, that comes to, uh, tends to come between uh, spouses, and that is career. And as I said, I can speak to this personally because at various times in my marriage, I have made my career uh, more important than my spouse. And uh, the reason that I did it is because I bought into the notion that career equals identity. 
Now, there's nothing wrong at all with working hard. There's nothing wrong with aspiring to success. There's nothing wrong with being good at what you do and wanting to be good at what you do. That's all good. But to the extent that it becomes your identity, it will destroy every relationship in your life, even your marriage. And it will introduce misery and pathology into your marriage. Believe it or not, marriage is even to come before your career. And I will tell you something. If there ever comes a day where Amy says to me, I don't want you to be a pastor because it's destroying our marriage. If that day ever comes, uh, I will be done being a pastor. Because in part, I know that Amy would never say that cavalierly. I mean, she would just never, she would never just throw that out. But if she ever said to me, you know, you, you got to stop doing that because it's, it's, it's getting in the way of our marriage. Then I would have to be done because there's nothing more important, nothing that's to come uh, between me and my spouse. Marriage is more important than even career. And I've had to learn uh, over the years, I've had to learn to build walls around my marriage and boundaries between my job and my marriage. Um. I mean, look, you know, like there are times in any career or occupation where you're going to be incredibly busy. I mean, I think about accountants during tax season and football coaches during football season and uh, lawyers. Well, I can't figure out when lawyers would be busy, but other... But but it's just, that's life, right? I mean, life is that sometimes there are going to be seasons in which you're going to be very busy. But if, if your career chronically is taking priority of your marriage, uh, over your marriage. Uh, let me tell you, the principles in the scriptures will bite back. They, they'll just bite. They'll bite back. And eventually you'll begin to see that, and you'll begin to feel that, and you'll begin to experience that, and your spouse will begin to feel it and experience it. And it will bite back. Okay, two more. Let me, And I'll, I'll close with these. I'll do them together. Um, friends and hobbies. Friends and hobbies. Uh, these things can sometimes take priority over a marriage. If your friends come before your spouse, you're in trouble. This is just how God designed marriage. If your friends come before your spouse, you're in trouble. If, if friends of either gender, by the way, I mean, if, if friends that are the same gender or friends of the opposite gender, who you enjoy being with more than your spouse, who you could share with, who you feel like understand you more than your spouse, who, uh, who you enjoy being with more than your spouse. You are already in tremendous trouble because one of the main purposes in marriage, and we'll talk about this in the series, is friendship. And so you can't have friends that come before your marriage. Now, the same is true for hobbies. Um, hobbies are great. It's great to have hobbies, but they must be subordinated to your marriage. If your hobby has become a way of escaping your spouse, then that hobby has become way too important to you. And it's time, it's time to subordinate that hobby to your marriage. And it might even be time to sacrifice completely that hobby if it's getting in the way of your marriage. Now, look, I realize that I probably have scared uh, some of you to death today, wondering, you know, you probably, some of you are thinking, what in the world have I gotten into if, if, if this is the case? 
if none of these things are supposed to come before my spouse? What in the world have I gotten myself into? You know, I want you to know something. That marriage is not a human invention. It was designed by God. And here's the other thing I want you to understand. Is that God didn't invent marriage to make you happy. Now you, that's not what you normally hear. Normally what you hear is that your spouse is supposed to make you happy. But I'm going to tell you, if your goal in your marriage is happiness, then you're, you're in trouble because there are going to be times in your marriage where you're going to be decidedly unhappy. And, it, and, and when you begin to get unhappy, you're going to think that you're wrong, or that, you, that you were wrong to marry the person that you married. And you're, you're going to want to discard your marriage because like, well, it's supposed to make me happy and it's not making me happy. We need to understand that that, wasn't, that was never the goal of marriage, to make you happy. The purpose of marriage is God designed it, and you can read it in this passage, is it's to sanctify you, it's to make you holy. That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to make you holy. In the context of marriage, you have to take a good, close look at yourself and who you really are, and you have to take... You see, in marriage, you can't run. You're there. You have to look at yourself. And you have to deal with yourself. And you have to deal with your faults. And you have to deal with your selfishness. And you have to deal with your prejudices. And you have to deal with your biases. And you have to deal with all of that in the context of marriage because you can't run. And God uses that to make you uh, holy. And as you learn to bring all of that stuff in your life, as you learn to bring it to the cross of Jesus Christ and deal with all of that stuff there... And you learn to live by the power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and not by your own instincts. Then what happens is that God, God brings about a transformation in you that allows you to love another person in a way that you could never love them before. And the byproduct of that is a kind of spirit-generated selflessness that ironically brings about happiness. The byproduct of all of that is happiness. But if you make happiness the purpose in a marriage, you're in trouble from the very beginning. See, the way God designed this thing is this thing called marriage. He wants two people to come together. They both leave everything else and they make their spouse the most important thing. And as they focus on Jesus Christ, as they both make Jesus Christ center in the marriage, they come closer to each other. And they get closer to him as a result. And they learn how much they each need Jesus to learn to love in the way that they're called to love. That's what marriage is about. Now, as I've talked today, there's probably things that have come to your mind that you're thinking to yourself, boy, you know, I, this is an area of my marriage that I need to work on. Don't be bogged down by that. Don't be beaten down by that. Don't walk away feeling like you failed in some way. Just own that before the Lord. Just own it. Take it to the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Rejoice that he has forgiven you and rejoice that he's moving in you and changing you and making you into the person that he wants to turn you into. Would you bow your heads with me? And would you just, whatever it is that maybe God has been speaking to you about, would you just own that this morning before him? Would you just just own that before him? Would you let him deal with that in your life? Would you let him speak to you about that? And just bring it to the cross. That's what you need to do this morning. Just take it to the cross. Lord Jesus, this is true about me. I need to make some changes here. Thank you that you're so committed to me, that you have forgiven me of this, and that you will work in me and through me. And that you will change me. Just bring it to the cross. And it's amazing the kind of transformation that he can do in a marriage. When two people are willing to come to the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the truth of marriage as it's been laid out here in Scripture. We, we thank you that you have uh, given us what your design for marriage is. Pray, Lord, that there are people, I know that there are people in the room this morning who... Uh, struggling in their marriages at this moment. And I pray, Lord, that, that as they interact with truth, that you would begin to work in them and through them. And that you would begin the process of healing marriages. And Lord, may we as a church be the kind of place that is so deeply committed to marriage as you have designed it. And that as a result, that we would, that we would demonstrate the transformation, the powerful transformation that happens in the gospel when a person brings their life to you, Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in your name that we pray this morning. Amen.